Hello, and welcome back to Outward. I'm Brian Louder. I edit Outward here at Slate. And no, I'm not crying at the Tales of the City Netflix trailer. You are. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate and host of The Waves, Slate's podcast about women and gender. And I am out here representing the femmes whose eyeliner hangs on by sheer force of will <laughs> all through this fucking allergy season. I swear my eyebrows are itching right now. God. It's so bad. Work. <laughs> and I'm Brandon Tinsley, the associate editor at New America and a contributing writer at Pacific Standard Magazine. And I'm just happy that we are finally back to rosé season. You would be. <laughs> Brandon. Would you say that rosé is part of a certain gay summer scene? A hundred percent. Carly Rae and rosé all day. <laughs> that is fascinating. That says that on it. <laughs> I'll be surprised if you don't. I should wear one to our live show this summer. Yeah, you mm. should. Well, it's fascinating <laughs> that you would say that because it just so happens that our show this month is all about the scene in queer life. Now, we've all met those queers who aren't into the scene or define themselves as non-scene. And what exactly they're talking about is going to be part of our discussion today. But we're also going to look at the scene in other ways. How many are there and how do they inform our identities as queer people? Do we expect our political figures and leaders to be a part of one? That's right. We're going to talk about Pete Boot Edge Edge. And (laughs) And we'll also find out why it can be a struggle for bi folks to find a scene of their own. All that, plus we've got our regular PNPs and updates to the gay agenda. Now, before we jump in, a quick editor's note. If all this talk of the scene has you thirsty for more, head over to Outward on Slate.com, our internet website magazine, for a package of articles looking at the topic from a bunch of fascinating angles, including leather dykes, gay bros, geeks, and a thriving queer and trans scene in Puerto Rico. You scene queens can read the whole package at slate.com slash tag slash scene. And now we're going to kick things off with our April Pride and Provocations. Um, happy to start. And in a twist, I'm provoked, guys. I'm oh provoked. <gasps> you say that with such a big smile on your face, know, though, so make us <laughs> it. it might just be me being grumpy. So um, the sequel to Love, Simon uh, which, for anyone who doesn't know, is Greg Berlanti's 2018 coming-of-age rom-com slash adaptation of the YA novel with a great title, Simon versus the Homo Sapiens Agenda, um, is reportedly getting turned into a TV series, which I think is great for a bazillion reasons. I'll list a couple. Uh, so it was the first uh, film of its kind to be backed by a major studio. It underscores the mm-hmm. importance of queer people telling their own stories. Um, and it also made a lot of queer people, including queer people on the side of the show, of the movie revisit their own uh, coming out stories in really beautiful and touching ways. And yet, (laughs) a lot of people on gay Twitter have been in their feelings about it um, in a way that I thought was immediately exhausting. Um, So on the one hand, I get where some of the criticism is coming from. A lot of people are saying sort of like, we want stories that move beyond cute white boys, even if said cute white boys are Mm, gay. mm -hmm. Um, Very valid uh, criticism and critique to lodge. Um, But on the other hand, um, if the reports are true, um, the TV series would adapt the sequel, which doesn't focus as much on Simon, but more so on his friend Leah, who is bi. Um, And that's straight up a slice of queer life that the culture at large glosses over and dismisses all the time, uh, which I think is something we should actually be holding up and celebrating. Um, 
In addition, I think that we should want it all. Um, I think we should want stories that portray aspects of queer life that are still really difficult for a lot of queer folks to deal with, as Love, Simon does, um, as Call Me By Your Name does, because I have to plug that as well. Um, <laughs> and we should want stories that expand those narratives, um, as Pose does, as Moonlight does. Um, so I think we deserve and should want all of this shit. Um, so I'm off my soapbox. No, that was a really You're good box. And I actually I like wasn't that. even aware of this conversation that was going on. So It might be my like Twitter bubble. Who knows? Okay. Love that bubble. <laughs> Want to be part of that bubble. Brian, what about you? Well, you guys, I went to the black party recently. Um, I don't know if all of our listeners m- will know what that is. It I is definitely this... didn't. Yeah. Same. Well, I will. I'm happy to share. There's also a piece on Slate.com, the internet magazine. Uh, the headline is Black Party 1989 uh, that talks about the history of it um, and specifically like covers what it looked like in 1989 at the height of the AIDS crisis. Um, but it's a party that's gone on for about 40 or exactly 40 years now. Um, and it's you could call it like part of the circuit party scene, although it's kind of like anti-circuit in certain ways. It's it's a kink fetish sort of vibe. Um, and it always takes place in like this in a huge venue and the tickets are kind of expensive and it's but it uh it attracts like four thousand people people travel from over the world so it's this big gay uh gay male cultural event um that i've always been curious about and so finally decided to go this year um and it made me so proud you guys it was like amazing to see this institution like happen um all the effort that goes into it is pretty incredible um, there's a diversity of age and body type there that you don't see in a lot of gay male spaces. Wow. Um, I'd actually say that most, well, maybe not most, but a, a huge percentage of the attendees were probably like over 40, wow. um, which and, and older, old, much older than that, even in, in many cases. Um, and so that was really cool to see. Um, and you know, the other thing that made me proud, uh, and I was not proud of myself for is that the party goes for, uh, I think it's like. 13 hours maybe more than that it's from like 10 to (laughs) 5 the next afternoon um i made it like eight hours uh could not could not could not do anymore but like i know people that that really did make it the whole time and uh they are inspirations so proud of the black party proud it exists um and hope it continues for another 40 years i'm still proud of you at age you know 30 whatever Thirty-one. <laughs> How old are you? One, one. Yeah, yeah. I'm still proud of you for making it eight hours into a party. I barely bring me did. Yeah. <laughs> um, I also have a pride this month. I am proud of the people putting together the DC Dyke March this year. Mm-hmm. Um, for those who don't know, uh, the the Dyke March as a, a concept and as an institution started in DC. DC was home to the first Dyke March ever in 1993. Um, so, you know, 26 years ago at this point, it was, uh, actually held in April and Dykes, Dyke identified people came from all over the place. Um, you know, 20,000 or more people, I think were reports at the time, uh, came, they marched from DuPont Circle, DC's sort of historic neighborhood, um, down to the White House and the National Mall. It was a protest as dyke marches still are today, uh, in a way that pride parades aren't as much. Um, And since then, you know, places all around the country and all around the world have instated dyke marches as part of their pride celebrations or in opposition to some of their pride celebrations, usually the day before the um, pride parade in whatever city. 
But DC's has been out of commission for, um, I want to say, 12 years. Um, So I was sort of barely in DC when the Dyke March stopped happening. So I've never been to one in Mm -hmm. my own city. Um, And a couple of years ago when I was working at the Washington City Paper, I reported on a group of women who were trying to make it happen again. Um, It fizzled out for a number of reasons that I won't get into here. (laughs) Um, But there's a bunch of people who are making it happen this year. And they're, um, you know, in true dyke fashion, taking an extremely intentional approach. There's been a million meetings. I had uh, breakfast with one of the organizers a couple days ago and we talked about it and she's just working so hard on it. And most of the people she's working with aren't even her friends. They're just people from the community who've stepped up because they want to see it happen. The theme is uh, Dykes Against Displacement. Uh, They're going to be partnering with some anti-gentrification organizations. I think it's going to be fucking awesome. I'm really excited. They're taking part of the um, route of the original Dyke March, even though it makes a little bit less sense now to do it around the National Mall in the White House when it's really just like tourists uh, mm-hmm. in their MAGA t-shirts and whatever. Um, but, you know, that's also part of like the provocative element mm-hmm. that I think is really integral to the Dyke March. Um, but also I think they want to make it very focused on local community, mm-hmm. which is really appeals to me. I'm so excited. And um after the Dyke March, I will bring my report okay. back to this <laughs> podcast. I love that. Yeah. Uh, so thank you to everyone who rated and reviewed our show. Uh, it's so great to see our listeners in the comments and know that it helps to get us into more ears where we can continue to advance the gay agenda. So please keep it up. Also, a quick plug to our listeners in New York or our listeners willing to travel for a bit of queer fun. You can get a double shot of Outward this summer. Uh, first, join us along with the Waves on June 8th for a live brunch show on the High Line. And then we're back in New York on June 27th for a live show at Joe's Pub, where we'll be commemorating 50 years in Stonewall and celebrating Pride. You can get your tickets now at slate.com slash live, and we hope to see you there. Yes, please come. We're please so come. It'll be so shows. fun. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So... First, it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9. 
Gaze Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. All right. Today's theme, the scene, is something that we've been wanting to tackle for a while. So in almost every queer community of a certain size, there are plenty of people who are into the scene and proud of it. And plenty of queer people or gay people who take equal pride in rejecting that scene. You might almost say that's a scene in and of itself. Uh, Sometimes it's because these people identify more with straight culture. They don't feel authentically connected to the sort of tropes and expectations of what it means to be gay in certain spaces. Uh, Sometimes people will reject the scene uh, for other reasons. It's too homogenous. It's too conservative. It's too insular. It's too alcohol-centric. But also, as we know, queers are not a monolith, so there are scenes within scenes or uh, other sub-scenes, queer scenes that have established themselves as alternatives or add-ons to larger gay and queer scenes. And that landscape of scenes has changed over time. So we're delighted to include a member of a different generation, (laughs) our fairy (laughs) godzaddy, June Thomas. Welcome back to the show. Hello, children. Did you like that very flattering introduction? (laughs) Yeah, no, never felt younger. (laughs) Um, So first question for you three, uh, do you consider yourselves part of the gay scene registered trademark? And uh, what about, you know, subcultures, smaller scenes, more specific scenes? Are you part of them? I will go first. I think that, at you know, I, I am older. I am, uh, let's just say in my 50s. Uh, and I remember when I was a mere, a mere youth, only being aware of like one scene, and that was like the bars, or maybe if there was a place where there was dancing, and it, that just felt like that was the scene. And then over time, I realized that there were many others, and I was part of other scenes um, that, you know, I if I worked at a feminist bookstore, that was actually a scene. Um I was on a magazine collective and that was a scene. And all the time that I was thinking, oh, I'm not part of that group, which in my case was like sporty dykes or to a certain sense by bar dykes. I mean, I would go to a bar once every week or once every couple of weeks. But I knew that wasn't my scene because, well, honestly, I wasn't cute enough or I just kind of wasn't like, didn't. Don't believe it. No, but I think people do believe that. Like, whether or not it's true, because we're all cute, (laughs) there is a feeling, I think, that, like, you go to a bar, especially when you're relatively freshly out or you're new to a town and you're trying to figure it out and you are so self-conscious. And I think that there are, in my case, there were women who were just so, like, I don't honestly know how much time they spent on their appearance, but to me, they were they were perfection, you know, their clothes, their hair, their, you know, their their self-presentation. And I just felt, whether or not it was true, that mine just was never going to match up. I can't even remember. I just remember thinking oh my God, I will never be that like smooth or something. I don't even quite know what the adjective is, but I knew that I didn't feel I was that. And, you know, I would, I 
was an immigrant. I, my teeth were not in the best condition. You know, there were things, there were real things that, that were a separating factor. And I knew also that, like, you can't really talk very much in bars. And my thing was always going to be talking. And so, <laughs> like, I, I knew that that, I didn't ever want to be that person who was like, oh, no, that's not for me. Because that meant rejecting queerness, because that was the most public, recognizable face of queerness. But I also knew that really wasn't ever going to be the place where I felt at my best and most proudly, fabulously gay. Brandon, what about you? Yeah, I'm thinking about, um, you know, just here in D.C., which was probably one of the one of only two cities where I've been like out since I've been out where I've actually sort of like been involved in different um, queer communities. And, you know, when I think I don't know if I would consider myself a part of like the bar scene even though i do really i always love like enjoy going just because it's like whenever a friend is visiting a gay friend a queer friend is visiting from out of town or something um we will hit up all the sort of like popular gay spots um and i always enjoy going and i think the reason i don't go more often is more like a money (laughs) issue i'm just like i can easily spend a lot on these two for one cocktails (laughs) at number nine um in a way that's like probably not great um but I do, June, what you're saying about being self-conscious, though, um, that resonates with me for slightly different reasons. I think about how, you know, if I think if somebody had to conjure up sort of the the scene in D.C., I would say it's, you know, it's mostly white. It is mostly well-adjusted people. Um, they might be sort of bourgeois. Um, and I think there's a lot of... Um, you know, to an extent, it might be my own sort of paranoia, but I think there's always a sort of uh, expectation that like you might be sort of gawked at in a way or, um, you know, just like you're you're having attention brought to to yourself that you don't necessarily want. And so those are things that I think about when I go to some of the, um, I guess, like more popular DC um, bars with that particular scene. Um, At the same time, like, again, like it doesn't dissuade me from going it's just something where like i kind of have to have the right mindset and be in the mood to go this is really this conversation is really a little bit of a privilege check for me um as a a white gay man i think because i i experience the question of the scene as like i've always thought of myself as someone that can like move between like most scenes or any scenes. I mean, I think that's been true. Uh, and I mean, I just talked about going to the black party, right? And I feel like most uh, other gay sub scenes, um, or at least gay, you know, ones that are, are centered around gay men anyway, um, are pretty easy for me to to drop in and out of. And I take a lot of pleasure in that, actually. And it and it actually irks me a little bit when people um, are dismissive of of some of those scenes so quickly. But it, but listening to this conversation, I like understand why. Like you know, it's because you've had those experiences. Um, but I also do think that there can be like like a lumping together of everyone that enjoys a certain kind of you know, say mm-hmm. like a, I don't know, like a. Um, I mean, let's say circuit parties, right? Which is not not something that I do a lot, but like I think that is a kind of scene that people look at and, and, and dismiss. Um, but there's a lot of beauty there, um, and I and I mean that in the sense not like physical beauty, but just like <laughs> the beauty of queer people celebrating together and dancing and doing something that I still think is actually quite fragile um, and that we haven't been able to do for that long. Yeah. Um, and and so when people are sort of like the scene like that. Mm-hmm. upsets me because they're not seeing that part of it but at the same time i there's like all this exclusion that's happening too um for for other reasons and so 
um, yeah, I'm just I'm just thinking a lot about about like m- the ease with which I can I, I can kind of move between scenes and how that might not be true for other people. It also I've been thinking about how um, queer women's spaces th- there's like less room for uh, scene segregation in queer women's spaces. I think because there mm. are few and far between. Um, there are you know businesses or. Uh, parties or events that cater primarily to um, queer women uh, or trans people are like not they're like even even fewer and and further between than those that cater primarily towards gay men. So it it feels like in some ways there are uh, the sub scenes are a little bit less developed or less robust, um, especially in communities with smaller queer populations. Um, And in D.C., one of the bigger like subcultures not just of queer people but of people is the um punk and diy Mm. scene Mm -hmm. and uh i've like i I consider myself sort of halfway a part of that scene and um it's one of the few scenes i've been a part of where queer and straight people share space and share political concerns and worldviews pretty seamlessly One, that really makes me uh, wonder about something that I would say when I was a youth and, and searching for my scene uh, in, in D.C. in the 80s, it felt to me that one of the most key divisions, and it was a division, between queer people was political and non-political. Mm. Um, because, it, and, and partly that was like a proxy for other things, um, but there was this sense that, oh, politics boring. Oh, no. Like, you take, you go to that other group for that. You go somewhere else. Like, we're not talking about politics here. We're, you know, we're dancing. Has that changed or did I just have a bad experience? I suppose you can't answer that second part. I think it's definitely changed. I mean, even like the whatever lesbian sports bar whose logo is like a softball pitcher with a long ponytail that's rainbow colored. <laughs> is uh, <laughs> extremely political uh, and uh, at least as far as I can perceive and know. I also feel like what political in queer life means mm-hmm. changed in a way that mm-hmm. made that more possible since mm-hmm. the 80s. Like I'm thinking about what, I mean, you could be political in the last 10 years and just support marriage equality, right. Right. Yeah. which is not such a radical thing to support necessarily, but um, is, is pretty easy for anybody to sign on yeah. to. Whereas, you know, in the 80s, it would have been uh, bigger asks probably. And I guess too, that you no longer, like there are other ways of meeting partners. So the bar, like it's okay for bars or, or dance scenes to be about just like group activities and group mm. uh, connection and, and transcendence of that kind rather than meeting Mr. or Mrs. Wright and, uh, you know, moving on from there. So you can kind of, you don't have to, it feels like not as much pressure as well in those mm-hmm. in those spaces. Well, I also thought about this in terms of um, a scene that I like to think I'm a member of, the Zaddy scene. Mm. Um, Ooh. Yeah, and well, partly because, you know, I was talking to somebody about this the other day and, um, about how, you know, A, like, what's the difference between, like, daddy and zaddy? And, you know, daddy is something that has, like, very, like, much clearer queer history to it, especially with, like, leather daddies and um, stuff like that. Um, Whereas, like, zaddy seems to sort of, like, to originate from straight culture. Um, But I think 
you know, the definition of a zaddy um, that I like to adhere to, I think is broad enough and vague enough that it allows queer people to very, very, very easily queer the shit out of it mm. um, <laughs> and um, sort of smuggle that into their own, you know, different queer scenes. So like, if you think about men who are considered zaddies. Um, so yeah, what is the, what is your working definition of a zaddy? So <clears throat> my working definition <laughs> um, is actually one that I took from Clover Hope, uh, who wrote this for Jezebel back in 2017. Um, and she says, Zaddy is a guy you look at and think, Zam, Zaddy. <laughs> Immediately, you know in your heart who's not a Zaddy. It's an instinctual response that's not worth explaining in depth because you're supposed to just feel it. Super broad, super vague, um, in a way that it's easy to, like, for queer people to appropriate certain, I mean, like, that likes It's like a little bit of a uh, tautological definition where mm-hmm. you're like, or, or almost like a you know it when you see it kind of a mm-hmm, thing mm-hmm. that I think that's inherently queer in my opinion (laughs) and especially because i think when you think of uh sort of celebrities in particular who are considered uh zaddies um a lot of them are straight dudes right so like the dark lord and sabrina um (laughs) colin firth drake um how are all those people in the same category (laughs) i have very different sexual reactions to all Um, yeah me too (laughs) Uh, idris elba my former landlord (laughs) (laughs) Um, But like, you know, a lot of, I think, younger gays in particular sort of latch onto these people um, in ways that I think, you know, when you think about it, you're sort of querying sort of straight norms of masculinity in a way that I think is actually really fun. Hmm. Um, You know, even I think to an extent it's sort of performative, but I think there is something there that is very queer and that is very interesting. I want to know what you guys think about this working theory that I have, which is that uh, in some ways the the gay scene and also all of these, uh, you know, subdivisions of queer scenes that we've been talking about are in some can be shaped by or formed in reaction to or in conversation with straight people's stereotypes and expectations Mm. of queer people. I definitely think that this 80s situation that I am vaguely recalling was was definitely informed by that because I think a lot of the appearance policing was actually around, um, you know, let's not be the the ugly men-like trolley creatures that straight people say we are or used to. Mm. I don't think Mm -hmm. they still do. Mm -hmm. But like, I think that instead of like, recognizing and celebrating the you know the various expressions of queerness at that that time at least we were really into policing like could you just maybe put on some makeup could you take better care of yourself do you have to dress like that and i think that you know it's clear that that has changed i mean like we're so much more open about expression and certainly around trans stuff and about you know about gender presentation. Yeah, June, that that actually makes me think of something. And Christina, you kind of pointed to this in your introduction that there are people who uh, identify as sort of non-scene and like, is that a scene in itself? I mean, what do y'all think about that? I feel like it, it is sort of, it's funny that like as much as, as much as some, some of us try to like differentiate ourselves from these things, we can't help but like form them over again. Um, and I feel like you see, like especially among, for example, gay men, and like, and you see it on Grinder a lot, like mm-hmm. people being like non-scene, don't like the scene. Um, 
Like, what is that? I mean, Brandon, do you have any thoughts about like what that means? Like, what are those guys signaling and what is their scene about? Yeah. So, you know, I try not to diagnose people as um, <laughs> oh, go self-hating on, go on. homophobes. Um, but I mean, I do think like to an extent, like I wonder where that's coming from and what it's actually trying to project. Because to me, I'm just like, OK, like if, you know, the quote unquote scene isn't your thing, then why is that something that you feel the need to tell people? Broadcast. And yeah. then what is your, like, what do you like? Right. You like, know? I'm more interested right. in knowing that um, than just knowing that, like, because to me, it almost seems like a sort of, um, you know, you're sending some sort of, like, value statement about, like, I'm better than that or, you know, right. I don't know. Like, I, I feel like it's unnecessary. More serious. Right. And the fact that, like, you try to make it something that's necessary to me seems, like, problematic. Um, so that's generally how I read people who are kind of like, oh, like that's like almost like I, to me, I almost think they're saying like, oh, that's like too gay, mm. um, mm-hmm. yeah. which I'm just like, oh, that seems like an unnecessary way to like talk about anyone. Like, why can't these things coexist? Why can't you like what you like and let people who do like those sorts of spaces enjoy those sorts of spaces without like your judgment? Yeah. I just want us all to like be able to hold hands and acknowledge (laughs) that we all live in like many different scenes Mm -hmm. and like that's cool and if like you don't like you know the bars or whatever don't go to the bars right awesome the person who does like the bars probably also likes three other things that maybe you do (laughs) like uh you know i i go to these dance parties i also like a dinner party queen like come to my dinner party (laughs) you know like there are other there are all kinds of scenes that we can be part of and we can move between them and that's like the beauty of human existence and blah, blah, blah. Um, so I, 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 like, I don't know. It seems like a good I, ending note to strike <laughs> for this. Yeah, <laughs> I, I feel like maybe maybe that's where we should uh, leave it. Please everybody <laughs> join me in a chorus of Kumbaya. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So as our listeners may be aware, there is a millennial person with rolled up sleeves running for the Democratic presidential nomination. He is called Mayor Pete. He is, like us, a gay. He is, in fact, only the second openly gay person to run for a major party's ticket following the GOP's Fred Carger in 2012. And he is the first to have a serious chance at the nomination, at least based on early buzz and fundraising. All of this has generated some fascinating and at times heated discussion over the past few weeks as queer people across the country process their feelings about this man being held up as a sign of progress for our community. We're going to try to add to that discussion today. <laughs> you sound like the the leader of, you know, a mediation group or something. <laughs> I, I so appreciate you, Brian. <laughs> so honestly, though, no, this like discourse has gotten like so spicy that I feel like we actually do need some of that like mediation, like uh, ground rules, yeah. like don't yuck my yum and whatever. Um, but I think maybe we should agree on one thing like in this conversation. We're not here today asking whether Pete Buttigieg is gay enough quote, by some unquote. arbitrary measure, gay enough, quote, quote, or like the right kind of gay, right? Like we don't care who he likes on Drag Race. We don't care if he knows what Drag Race is. That's not the question. What we're considering is this larger question of what kind of connection we expect or even want like our queer leaders to have to queer politics or communities, especially when they sort of rocket to the national stage like this. So. Does that is, does everyone agree to those ground rules? Does that <laughs> yes. feel good? We agree. Consent, awesome. Um, 
So, Christina, I understand that you might have some hmm. thoughts on this. Huh. Uh, would you like to, to weigh in? Yes. As a matter of fact, I would. I That was a slightly rude way of introducing <laughs> it, but thank you, Brian. Now, um, so a couple of weeks ago, I wrote a piece for Slate.com about Pete Buttigieg that made waves. I would say it made a lot of people angry. Um, I've never experienced, you know, I write about like abortion, sexual assault, uh, constantly engaging in um, what I like to think is incisive cultural and political criticism. (laughs) And I've never experienced the kind of feedback that I got from gay men that uh, as when I wrote about Pete Buttigieg. Uh, So the gist of my piece, I had heard from straight and queer people alike that people were sort of struggling with the idea of how to interpret Pete Buttigieg as a candidate in terms of diversity and representation in the Democratic 2020 uh, presidential slate, which is mm-hmm. the most diverse ever. It's uh, kind of crazy to think about for me anyway. Um, but Pete Buttigieg kind of pulled in front of a lot of these other people who have a lot more name recognition and at the time had a lot more money than he did. Um, so I was trying to pull apart what – how his different identities, not just his gay identity, has affected his life experience and the way people perceive him as a candidate. And my thesis was basically that we can't discount his other identities besides his gay identity. And uh, if if you take him at his word, and he's talked a fair amount about being gay, he doesn't really think his gay identity has had much bearing on who he is as a person. So... I think it touched a raw nerve for a lot of people who are genuinely ecstatic to see uh, a gay man who, you know, has a husband and is not trying to hide his gay identity at all, being so uh, fetid by a lot of really sort of establishment uh, politicians and being taken seriously. And, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, he'll be in the debates like he's this will be a really impressive platform for a gay politician to have. Um, and, you know, he is pretty progressive. So that's exciting, too. He's not somebody who's uh, trying to be like the conservative foil um, or the person who's trying to justify some shitty policies because they're gay. So, like, you can kind of trust me or feel good about voting for bad policies or non-progressive policies because, look, I'm gay. He's made a lot of people really excited. Yeah. And I, I think actually it, so to to sort of zoom out from him a little bit and think about this larger question of, like, what do we want from someone like him? And, you know, if it was another person, I think we could ask the same kind of questions. Like, do we want our leaders or, or, or political leaders or other leaders to be excited about being queer? I mean, you, you just spoke about how he seems to be at best kind of like fine with it, but not, you know, it's not it's not something that he thinks of as being super influential in his self-formation, for example. Um, I mean, when, when y'all are like looking at who you, who you want to personally be excited about when they get into these kinds of positions, what do you what do you want from them in terms of their their sort of emotion emotional uh, relationship to their identity? Well, the first thing I thought about with um, you know sort of specifically the word excited was sort of like okay, what does that mean in this context and what can it mean in this context? And so you know I don't you know necessarily need um, a politician, a gay politician, to be like you know bouncy like an electron or something. Um, when they're talking about sort of, uh, their gay identity or whatever. Um, but like, I, it 
does matter that if like does is your being gay is you is your being queer something that energizes and meaningfully influences you know the not only um the types of policies that you kind of stand for um but also your um your ability your openness to listening to constituents to voters to citizens um who might be affected by these issues by this identity in a way that like you might not be um and i think that's just i feel like that's kind of a low bar it's just like <laughs> do you have empathy for people who don't have your exact experience of queerness um and are, do you know how to address that and are you willing to address it um so that that's not a glaring blind spot um when it comes to pushing for certain things i to me that's pretty basic and but very important i feel like for anyone who is in this position of being like the first gay candidate and i myself am like a gay voter like looking at it if that is going to be meaningful to if the gay part of that description is going to be meaningful to me they have to be it has to be meaningful to them right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i feel like um in this particular case it just doesn't feel like it is super meaningful to him. It feels like something, in fact, that he had to get over um, and, and as, a, as a sort of on his path to, to this this candidacy and that he's integrated it now into his life, of course, but that that it wasn't something that was like sort of a source of joy um, historically. And my queerness is that for me. And so to not hear people, not to, to not hear a person in this position speak that way makes it hard for me to be excited or to like relate to them on an emotional level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, and you know, there's nothing wrong with somebody having the sort of relationship to their gayness or queerness that Pete has to his. Uh, but I think it's different to say, like, there's nothing wrong with that, but it also doesn't have to resonate with me. Mm -hmm. yeah, um, yeah. And, you know, I don't expect a candidate for president to be uh, like a punk dyke, <laughs> you know, but I don't see a lot of overlap in our relationships with queerness. I'm not saying he's not gay or that I'm more gay than him or less gay than him. And I think that's a place where this uh, discourse can kind of get derailed. There's some people who, you know, embrace queer community and queerness as a political worldview. And then other people who are like, you know, this is one part of me mm -hmm. that is like, I just happen to love these other people. Pete has said, it's just like me having brown hair. That's what he said in his coming out essay. You know, mm -hmm. he's sort of like, I'm just, I'm, I'm like you straight people, except I'm gay. Um, and, and that the decision for me to be gay was like above my pay grade, right? Like as a as a reference to God, you know, born this way. Like actually, yeah. I, I kind of think he does find joy in his queerness, but the way he frames it is in almost exclusively religious terms. So just like oh, you said, Brian, he has said like, you know, he said to Mike Pence. Mike Pence wasn't there, but he said, you know, addressing him when he wasn't in the room, like. If you have a problem with mm -hmm. me, you take that up with God because God created me this way. Um, mm -hmm. And then he's also said on several occasions that his marriage has brought him closer to God, his marriage to a man. Um, That's true. So, like, yes, I think he does. He is, I think, now happy that he's gay, even though he has said that, you know, previously he would have taken a pill to be straight if he could have. He would have taken a knife and cut out the part of him that was gay. I think he, mm -hmm. it seems like he's over that. Um, you yeah, know, yeah. but the, like, I don't think that my queerness brings me further or closer to any God. And so I think his identity as a man of faith might be more, might have more resonance mm -hmm. with 
you know, people of faith, then his queerness relates to my queerness. Does that make sense? Yeah, mm-hmm. it just seems like it's yeah, more yeah. salient. Yeah. Um, I think that's, that's, that's a really great point, Christina. I want to uh, change gears slightly um, and look at, um, you know, this this idea of like a connection to queer politics. So, you know, this he is the first or second major candidate for this particular office. But, you know, there have been uh, decades and decades of queer politics um, that one might look to as inspiration. And um, it doesn't seem like that, uh, you know, Pete does. So let me just read a quote, actually, from this great New York Magazine uh, profile uh, that just went up recently by Olivia Nuzzi. um, And it's sort of about this. So it says, After he returned in 2015 uh, to being mayor of South Bend, he made the decision to publicly come out at the age of 33, five months before voters took to the polls to decide whether to reject him. Quote, the first time I knew that you could be gay and still be in politics, I guess, was when I became aware of Barney Frank, who's also just a remarkable mind and a very interesting person to watch, Buttigieg told me. I was vaguely aware of Harvey Milk and had not and have come to understand more and more of his significance. But there were not a lot of gay political role models that I could look to, certainly in my own geography, when I was getting started, end quote. Um, so that that's a really interesting statement to me um, because it takes like queer political role models in a very, very narrow sense, I think. Right. Like it's Barney Frank, Harvey Milk. And like, that's kind of it. Um, and I, and, and that like gives me pause, like I'll just speak personally, because as I say, there, you know, decades of, uh, of political activism from the queer community that you could look to as inspiration. Um, certainly not on, not on the presidential scale because like homophobia, right? Like we couldn't do it, <laughs> but, but, but certainly in terms of values and in terms of, um, what the community wanted or needed at, you know, at specific points in history. Um, and, and you could imagine like a person, a candidate in this position coming out of that, right? No, maybe not being like the radical punk, uh, anarchist that, that some might want, but like at least coming out of that tradition um, and having and having that sort of inform the way that they talk about things. And this particular person doesn't, but it would be possible. Um, and so I, I don't know, what, what does that quote like sort of say to you guys? Do you, do you, do you crave something more like that? Or, or how, does that, how does that land? Um, when I read that quote, I immediately thought of uh, Tammy Baldwin because, mm. um, you know, I tried to narrow my vision of the the type of what I think uh, the type of gay politician that I think Pete Buttigieg was probably looking for, which is like a palatable to straight people um, like on their way to higher office, ready to, you know, be accepted as a sort of mainstream political figure, kind of a queer, not somebody out of the activist tradition. I don't think that's Mm -hmm. I don't think. He's an activist. You know, you look at some other politicians, if we don't want to talk about scenes, people have been comparing him to Obama. You know, Obama came out of community organizing. Pete Buttigieg came out of the military and McKinsey. That's a totally different scene and a totally different vision of power, I think. Again, no value judgment. You know, everyone has their own political uh, opinions on on whether that matters and what that signifies. Um, But I don't think he would I don't expect him to pick up on, you know, some of the activists or even necessarily the great queer orators that he might take uh, Mm -hmm. inspiration from. But Tammy Baldwin is somebody that I was kind of sad that he didn't think of because he's saying, you know, especially in the Midwest or what did he say? Certainly in my own geography, 
Tammy yeah, Baldwin's yeah. in Wisconsin. When he was coming of age, she was the first openly gay woman elected to the U.S. Congress. That was in 1998. Uh, in 2012, you know, before he came out, three years before uh, Pete Buttigieg came out publicly, she became the first openly gay person elected to the U.S. Senate. She was, um, you know, serving in state legislature before that. Like, it it kind of I was like, do you not see women as a role model or like, were you looking hard? You know, especially as a queer woman, I really look up to a lot of these um, queer women who have paved the way in politics. And sometimes I don't think they get enough credit for the groundbreaking that they've done. Yeah. Like one thing that kind of jumps out to me is, you know, I think, you know, and this isn't not all queer people are like this, but I think queer history is something that is withheld from us for so long that I mm. think that often when people come out, one of the first things you try to do is like to learn more about this history. And then I think, you know, when you scratch just below the surface, like it's so rich. Um, and so like for me, when I think of like queer uh, political role models, I think of people like Sylvia Rivera, Marsha B. Johnson, Lorraine Hansberry, people who are more in the sort of activist tradition. Um, mm -hmm. But like you can even look at just like how robust queer organizing has been since World War II, right? Like you have the Medicine Society, you have Daughters of Belitis, you had ACT UP. Um, and so like, you know, it's not, you're not running for president, um, but these are people and organizations that have significantly influenced uh, queer politics. Um, and so to me, that it just, it, it sort of shows like how I think there's work to be done when it comes to like, you know, learning about, your history and learning like it's it's not even just so you can just say like oh like i know about so and so but you know it how can you um expect to necessarily build on the work that's already been done if you don't know about it you know one thing that i've seen um a lot of people saying about pete uh is that him being on this stage is like life will be life-changing for for queer kids and it makes me wonder like should we all just sort of of at some point put these discussions aside and get behind this guy because he is one of us. Um, and, and, and would we do that for, you know, should we do that for any figure like this? What, what do you guys think about that? Well, partly I think like at what point, um, in, I guess the, the road to the white house, um, would we be putting things aside? Like when, you know, if it comes to like, you know, if he is the democratic nominee, that's like one thing versus important conversations. Um, like you're saying, Christina, that we have not had, but that are very, very important. And you can have respectful, rigorous conversations mulling over what somebody means to certain people, to certain parties. Um, and, you know, that I don't think that means that you have to vote for Buttigieg. I also think we have a long overdue luxury right now, which is to, you know, not try to choose one identity over another. I mean, there are so many candidates running who would mark a major first or a step forward in terms of representation. Um, and I'm glad that they're all going to be up there debating um, and, and, you know, some giving us new things to argue about, especially in terms of uh, policy and and uh, degrees of progressiveness and their strategies for overcoming Trump um, in the general election that like I I find it impossible to choose one thing that's important to me, which is queer identity and representation over any other. What do you think, Brian? 
You're the one who posed the question. <laughs> I agree with you both. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I think I think I think I, I love what you've been saying, Christina, about this. We, we are sort of in uh, one way to look at this. This, even though it's like a heated discourse, it's like such a privilege to get to have it. Um, and so I'm down to have it for a while yet. And then I think once you know, once there is a democratic democratic nominee, that's who I will be voting for because like have to. Um, but until then, I think I think the conversation is great and. Um, you know, queer people deserve to be able to to have this discussion, and I hope we can let each other have it, like maybe in a more, um, I don't know, you know, I'm not going to say civil way, but like in a in a more understanding way uh, than than has been happening um, as we move forward with the Budajaj, uh moment that we're in. I found this really healing. Thank you, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'd also be really interested in hearing from any listeners in Indiana, if hmm. if y'all are out there, about you know what the gay download is on Pete Buttigieg in Indiana. What scene is he a part of? Is he a part? Maybe of Maybe he scene? is a scene queen, and we just don't know. Like that's like <laughs> that's if, totally yeah, a possibility. Call, send us a send us an email if that's the truth, because that would be amazing. It's like yeah. uh, we're at outwardpodcast at slate.com if you have any intel. So one part of the LGBTQ umbrella that, when it's not being overlooked entirely, is too often misunderstood is bisexuality. To talk with us more about her own experiences with bi culture and how that fits into broader queer scenes, we have Shirley Chan, former Slate video producer and current HuffPost video director. Shirley, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So happy to have you. So could you start by telling us how you identify and what city you live in? Uh, I live in... Brooklyn, New York, and I identify as bisexual. And what traditionally, I guess, has been your experience as a bi person navigating queer spaces in New York City or elsewhere? I usually just identify with the umbrella term queer because I feel as though there's a lot of biphobia in queer spaces still to where it's something that I don't reveal until hmm. later on when I've established a relationship with someone. And could you describe like what that biphobia sort of looks like? Uh, what what forms does it take? So I've dated a lot of women where they don't know that I'm bisexual until one day I mentioned that I think like a man is attractive and then I mentioned oh yeah like I'm bisexual and then they're really taken back and just like wait you're bi and it's just a lot of kind of like they it feels like they lose trust in me all of a mm. sudden because of just like you know stereotypes that come with being mm -hmm. bi of just like oh like I'm very promiscuous like I'm gonna leave them for a man and it's weird because you know the stereotypes still stick and I feel like I've experienced that with a lot of um, dating a lot of lesbians. Wow. Yeah. Um, sort of like always, I guess, making the case for like, are you actually queer and are you going to stick mm -hmm. around, which is kind of wild. Yeah. So the theme of this particular episode is the scene. So we're looking at queer, the queer cultural environment broadly, but also the different subcultures within it. So in your own experience, is there a particular bi scene um, or even spaces or groups that seem to more explicitly embrace bi people in their own sort of unique experiences? So I don't think that there's necessarily a bi scene because 
I often just find myself in a lot of queer spaces. However, I find that like I tend to go to parties or events that are advertised or marketed as like a queer space rather than mm-hmm. just like a lesbian party because I think I associate a lot of um like a lot of my biphobic experiences have been with people who um with women who strongly identify as lesbians. And so I find myself going to queer spaces more because people are more accepting overall and that is where I feel more comfortable coming out as bi even though I also just identify as queer mm-hmm. before I reveal that I'm bi. If you had to describe a bi culture, not just queer culture, but if there's a culture specific to bi people, would you say that there are like specific cultural or political or social touchstones? I mean, so for me, like finding bi culture, I find it mostly on the internet. Mm -hmm. Like I have friends who are also bi and, you know, like they're my support system in real life. But I think I find a lot of it on the internet through like memes and Twitter and a lot of people who I feel like I follow a lot of people on Twitter who are very outspoken about being bi and I feel like I try to also be vocal about it on the internet more rather than more so than in person and I think it's because I feel like I have the support of the bi people out there uh, to where I'm making these jokes and um like it's like when like a new movie comes out and both of the leads like m- like the the man and the woman is super hot and then I'm like that's bi culture right there <laughs> you know like nice. uh, um I read a really good article in um Autostraddle that came out in conjunction with the final episode of Broad City and mm-hmm. um it talked about the idea that these two women who, um, you know, the two Broad City leads who are both queer in real life and are both Mm -hmm. queer on the show. Um, And I'm not sure exactly how they identify, but they both hook up with women and men on the show. So um, Mm -hmm. they might identify as bi. But um, the article talked about how the show, uh, for some people, really elevated the idea that there could be a bi culture separate from, like, just bi people, you know, taking bits and pieces from straight culture or or lesbian culture or gay culture and making their own mishmash of it. But the idea that there's Mm -hmm. actually, you know, the possibility for and and maybe in some communities, the actual existence of, you know, by a a by like way of dressing and by jokes and like by ways of interacting with the world. Is that something Mm. that rings true to you at all? That sounds like a very interesting article. That you I should read it. <laughs> um, or is that something that you would aspire to as a member of the bi community? I mean, yeah, I would definitely aspire to that. But I just, I mean, I was telling Daniel about this the other day, but I just like can't imagine what a bi culture would look like. I mean, what you mentioned about, you know, taking little pieces of just like lesbian culture and little pieces of like straight culture. Does it have to be that way? Or can it just be just like a a melting pot of like I mean then like I feel like that's also just me trying to identify closer with the queer part of my identity like the first thing that I you know come out with and I'm not sure you know like do I want like the melting pot to be bi culture but then it's just like or do I want 
like the little pieces of being a lesbian and being straight like I'm not sure what I want and I'm not sure what bi culture would look like and I'm not sure what a, like a bi space would look like like would I be there with only it's not like I would be there with only just like other <laughs> bi people like you know like you know I don't yeah. know I also think it's worth maybe turning that question around slightly and, and recognizing that like bi people have created things that we call gay culture or lesbian culture mm, but they mm-hmm. haven't been credited with it for like decades or centuries depending on how you want to look at it um or they've often, been just sort of flattened as gay right mm-hmm. yeah exactly yeah. that's what i yeah exactly so either either they've been like sort of mis uh misnamed by like history or they were had to be closeted about it because of all the the phobia mm-hmm. um so i think sometimes when we make these divisions between like what's gay culture or straight culture like actually bi people have been there all along making both of those things and so mm-hmm. it, it i don't know i, I mm-hmm. think it's worth like reframing the question that way a little bit too and just uh, acknowledging the presence and contributions yeah i feel like oftentimes you know if if a bi person were to do anything that isn't heterosexual it, it counts for you know gay culture mm-hmm. but it's not credited as like you know like a bi person did it yeah, yeah exactly I also wonder if some of those distinctions are beginning to be erased, hopefully in a way that doesn't erase the existence of bi people. But the way you talk about queer spaces, Shirley, is also Mm -hmm. the way I experience queer spaces. Um, You know, I identify as queer and a lesbian, but like queer first and foremost, in part because of my own, you know, history and relationships and community with trans and Mm -hmm. non-binary people and also cis men. Mm -hmm. Um, But like, it's not it doesn't feel so much like there's a strong division between or that when you talk about queer spaces, the idea hopefully would be that everybody who identifies as LGBTQ would, you know, feel at home in that space. And that creates its own sort of culture. Um, Mm -hmm. Whereas I think, um, you know, in previous generations and and maybe still in certain spaces, there's been more of a stark division where people assume, for instance, that anyone who goes to a specific party or community gathering is like just a lesbian mm-hmm. or, you know, in other spaces, people are just straight. I've even like had that interaction, like that thought within the past like a few days where it's like I'll tweet something that's gay and then somebody was just like, oh, I thought this person was straight and they'll comment on a way that's just like totally down or something like that and i'm just like gay um when it's like maybe they're bi like yeah (laughs) maybe they identify in some other way um but yeah Mm -hmm. just how easily like you know even you know i like to think of us as thoughtful queer people like how easy it is to sort of um want to um simple oversimplify um people's contributions and experiences in that way but Mm -hmm. i mean a lot of times when i'm like joking with friends like if I'm dressed like more butch than usual, it's just like surely you look so gay, and I just like I, mm. I accept that, you know. Like I'm not gonna expect anyone to be like, "Oh, that's so bi of you," you know. Like that, that's something I would never expect to hear from anybody. But you know, like I'm like, okay, yeah, I look gay. But Great. is that? Do you take it a little bit as like a uh, affront to your bi identity? No, I don't. I yeah. think I mean then it's just kind of like fun, and then I'm like thinking of gay as just like a more like general Mm. i guess then that's just me just like thinking like yay is just um synonymous with butch in that context Mm -hmm. or you know like i'm looking gayer than usual okay i'm just looking more butch you wrote a really good piece for slate um that made me lol it was i think the headline was something like 
everything Kristen Stewart does. Like oh. I get gayer every time Kristen Stewart does a new movie. <laughs> like and honestly, now, it's so true. Kristen Stewart just gets gayer and gayer, and I'm and like, so wait, you. same. Like, like our gayness like parallels each other. Oh, she's so fucking good. Um, oh, I was actually and the hoping... new pi- the photos from the Charlie's Angel like uh-huh. the words like, right out of my you mouth. Kidding? I me? needed to have a, a moment to bring that up in this episode. Fucking Those Google arms. it, listeners, Those if arms. you haven't seen it already google it um she's incredible um but yeah like your use of the word i would be lying if i said your use of the word gayer in that um piece didn't make me think like well wait but isn't surely by mm. you know yeah. um so i feel like i'm still sort of confronting that in myself mm-hmm. that like there clearly is like a stereotypical gay culture that people associate you know it's, it's women's like the way they dress and the way they talk about women and stuff with but like so it it, i feel like it's easy to describe someone as gay getting like gayer or less gay um and you know everyone can sort of laugh about it and we can all kind of accept that but it definitely crossed my mind like do you feel like we that there would be a point where you know, like gender and sexuality in some communities are are just so fluid that it, it makes no sense anymore to say like so and so looks gayer or is getting gayer. I think regardless of how fluid the community becomes, I think, you know, using the term like more gay, like gayer or less gay or whatnot will still always be there because I see it as so, you know, if it's like two women talking to each other. I see it that, you know, when a woman is more butch, saying, like, gayer makes sense. And then, you know, if, I'd, if like, a, a gay man is being more femme in a way and mm-hmm. being, you know, just really flamboyant, like, mm-hmm. that's also just, like, gayer. And I think I see that term as just, like, straying from the norm or like what people think is the the norm like the gender the gender norm yeah Yeah. and i think part of it is like like reclaiming power in something that power and pride in something that has traditionally been you know marginalized in society Mm -hmm. like you know people being punished for gender nonconformity. Yeah, like anything that challenges, you know the gender norm or any sort of norm and like for someone who is even, you know, someone who's even just like non-binary. Like if they're wearing something where it's just so completely just like neutral, like that is their way of challenging uh. the norm as well, you mm-hmm. know? To where people can't say they look feminine, feminine or masculine. Right. They just like they've created something in their like mm-hmm. on their own. I guess in a way, would that would that also be gayer? <laughs> <laughs> Or would it be bi culture? Buyer, yeah. Buyer. One thing I guess I would like to hear more from you, Shirley, about is: Do you find a sense of community with other bi people that is missing from the community that you find with other, you know, gay people or or straight people? Is there a specific value in in you know that sort of? Uh, we all understand each other type of community. Yeah, I think there's definitely a value because a lot of times, you know, with biphobia, a lot of like what you feel and how you identify feels a little invalidated. But with surrounding myself with bi people, you know, being able to 
like um, like I was saying earlier, you know, a lot of these jokes that go back to just like basically pointing out like, hey, like bi people are still here. You're erasing us. But in that way, just our like it would it's like our way of maintaining our own culture. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it's great because I, I mean, I surround myself with other friends who are bi and I feel more connected with them because I don't feel invalidated if I say a man is cute or something or I say I slept with a man. And that's a good feeling, just like the same way of like when I was coming out to my friends and I would tell them that I like a woman and they were happy for me. You know, it's Mm -hmm. the same thing of just like this, like when I tell my other bi friends I slept with a man, they're like, ooh, how was it? Instead of just like, And not just like surprise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know. It's, yeah. No, that's great. It's always worth noting, too, that uh, studies show that the majority of the LGBT community is bi, uh, actually. So oh, wow. uh, when you look into it, so um, wow. it's you shouldn't have to feel that way. There's more of you than everybody else. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. thank you. Well, Shirley, thanks so much for coming on the show. I think you've enriched our own queer experiences and the show um, by speaking with us. So glad to be here. Thank you for having me. All right, that's just about it for this month's episode. But first, I want to hear y'all's gay agendas. What do you have to recommend for us, Brandon? So I saw William Friedkin's 1970 adaptation of Boys in the Band. And you haven't stopped talking about it since. I really haven't. (laughs) I've been bugging you on Slack, um, on our phone calls. um, And I was just so tremendously moved by it um, and was kind of ashamed because I was like, how did this movie come out in 1970 based on a play that came out a couple years before? Um, how's it been around this long? And I hadn't heard of it. Um, Wait, you hadn't heard of it or you hadn't seen it? I hadn't it? heard of it. Wow. I hadn't even heard of it. I um, still haven't seen it, but I've definitely heard of it. I was with a friend in Rock Hill when I was going to the hideaway, Brian. Um, yes. And he mentioned it and was, and he was, and he, his mouth literally dropped when I said, <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, But, you know, put simply, you know, it follows a group of friends in New York who come together um, one night to celebrate one of uh, the friends, uh, Harold's birthday. And so the scene, it's uh, New York, uh, 1970. Um, You know, they're younger. I think they're supposed to be younger than they actually are. Um, (laughs) Shade. In in the movie. Well, because I think somebody was just like, I'm 29. And I was like, girl. Um, But... um, so, you know, it's this pretty somewhat diverse group, but sort of like the the sort of hodgepodge of queers you'd expect to find, I guess, in like New York in 1970. Um, and, you know, they're, they seem like they're, you know, sort of well-established, well-adjusted to um, their own identities. But of course, that's part of the, the twist is that they're not. Um, and so I'm aware that the main criticism of the film is that it, um, you know, sort of depicts gay men as... Uh, being both self-hating and narcissists. Um, and, you know, they're just going to, if because they're not going to kill, you know, they're not going to kill themselves, but they are going to have these awful, unhappy lives. Um, and so there's um, a part of a speech that I'm just going to read that's very short. Brian, I'm sure you know which one is coming. <laughs> um, so Harold gives this to Michael, who's hosting the party toward the end of the movie. And it's um, one of the most cutting things I've ever heard in my life. Um, So he says, you're a homosexual and you don't want to be, but there's nothing that you can do to change it. Not all your prayers to your God, not all the analysis you can buy in all the years you've got left to live. You may very well one day be able to know a heterosexual life if you want it desperately enough. 
if you if you pursue it with all the fervor with which you annihilate, but you will always be a homosexual as well. Always, Michael. Always. Until the day you die. All the while, Michael <sighs> is turned toward um, like the balcony and his face is just like contorting as he's being read. Um, I feel like I want that read at my wedding. <laughs> it, it, it was. It was <laughs> well, and then Harold, when he's like leaving, he turns around and he's like, call you tomorrow. <laughs> 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 um, but, you know, like on the one hand, it does get at the point about like, you know, gay men are trying to like somehow compensate for the fact that they are gay but also i like how it does speak to something on some on some level how it's a very it's natural to be gay how like if that is how you identify and how you live um you can't escape it no matter how much you try and i feel like that in some ways is freeing and sort of takes a burden off your shoulders like whew, like this isn't necessarily a choice um and um i also think there's it's important to acknowledge that this is still an internal struggle that a lot of people have um, just because of how they're socialized and the images and the messages that they're receiving, um, even for this group of gay men in New York, right? Like in a progressive city, this is something that they're all still um, struggling with. Um, And so I think to have these sort of, these two sort of uh, declarations, um, especially when it did it, uh, was nothing short of revolutionary. So check it out. Um, for my agenda item, I'm going to recommend a demo tape from a DC queer punk band. Uh-huh. Uh, the band is called Homo Superior. Um, the drummer is also Booby Traps drummer. Her name's Kit. What's up, Kit? <laughs> She's so great. Um, and uh, I feel like they are a really great um, example of what I love about queer punk and specifically DC's queer punk scene. It's like really in your face, uh, but also kind of tongue in cheek queerness. Um, the Pete Buttigieg's, uh, you know, my gayness brings me closer to God will not find much to love about this. It's, it's extremely sacrilegious, um, but in a way that I love. Um, the band is fronted by Donna Slash, who also does a lot of drag in DC. Brian, I think you've seen her perform at uh, Gay Bash. Yes. Oh my gosh. DC she's so party. good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Sort of like in the bearded queen tradition mm. and yeah. like uh, 80s, like hair band slut sort of aesthetic. Um, so good. One of the tracks on the demo is called Rail Mary, which I mm. appreciate as a sacrilege <laughs> and also a pun lover. So go on Bandcamp or wherever you listen to your music, find Homo Superior's Mall Madness demo, give it a listen, let me know what you think. It's really, really short, also uh, demonstrative of the punk aesthetic, Uh, so it doesn't take too long to listen, but it's one of my favorite uh, queer scenes, Mm. and I highly recommend it. That is wonderful. Um, Well, changing gears completely, and apropos of my uh, gay dinner party scene, um, which I'm a part. (laughs) (laughs) I would say you're probably the leader of that scene, Brian. I'm the leader of it. Uh, Apropos of the gay dinner party scene, of which I am the leader, uh, (laughs) I wanted to recommend a book um, from a couple years ago. It was called Provence 1970, and um, it's written by Luke Barr. Um, And it's it's a sort of... Like I guess you'd call it like a novelized look at um, uh, a bunch of food world figures uh, in the late 60s and 1970s specifically, including uh, Julia and Paul Child, James Beard, 
Richard Olney, MFK Fisher, all of whom were in Provence uh, sort of over this, uh, like, I think it's like a six month period, something like that. Um, and it's a queer scene because actually a lot of these folks were queer. Um, it's not, that's not like talked about a yeah, lot, but, but MFK Fisher was bisexual. Um, James Beard was gay. Richard Olney was gay. Um, there's a lesbian couple who are lesser known who were also there. Craig Claiborne, the New York Times food critic was gay. So they were all sort of hanging out together and birthing this, um, like new American French influenced cuisine that became famous just afterward via like Chez Panisse and, and restaurants like that. And it's the kind of food that we are all pretty familiar with now, but it, but it sort of started then. Um, and I think you could argue, uh, and the book I think argues this like a bit implicitly that, uh, it is, uh, in some ways the output of a, a little, tiny queer scene um, in France at that moment. Um, and it's also just beautifully written. So um, highly recommended book to check out, Provence 1970. I want to say, I think one of the gayest desserts I've ever had was at your house, Brian. You <gasps> had made some sort of like lavender gelato with like a little cardamom biscotti stuck in it and like the gayest little swirl of lemon zest on top. I don't think I've ever had such like a gay ass dessert in my life. My my I, my gayest uh, kitchen implement is actually the device that makes those little lemon dust swirls. <laughs> they're so, so curly. They're, they're so, so curly. curly. It's it so great. Cute. No, th- I'm so flattered that you remembered that. Thank you. <laughs> And that's your gay agenda for this month. Uh, please send us feedback, topic ideas, and advice questions at outwardpodcast at slate.com or via Facebook or Twitter at Slate Outward. And also, don't forget to get your tickets to our live shows in June at slate.com slash live. Thank you to Danielle Hewitt, who provided production assistance for this episode. Our producer is Daniel Schrader. June Thomas is the senior managing producer of Slate and the scene queen of our dreams. <laughs> If you like Outward, please subscribe in your podcast app, tell your friends about it, and rate and review the show so others can find it. We'll be back in your feeds on May 15th. Bye, Christina. Bye, Brandon. Bye, Brian. See ya. Stay gay. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight 
back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails, there ain't no going back.